Good news, uncomfy legends. Many of you have asked two things. First, how you can support the mission of this show and help empower people to have honest conversations and not feel like they're always being forced to recite some sort of a script that society expects of them. And second, how you can get more of me, of my content. The simplest way to hear more of me is to listen to my ABC radio show for three hours every day from 12.30pm Sydney time. That streams on the ABC Listen app. You can download that app all over the world, figure out the time difference and tune in. But soon you will also be able to subscribe to me. Uncomfortable Conversations has become so successful. Thank you for that that we will soon be ramping up our output and producing at least one new piece of fresh content every week for people who want to feel like they're taking part in our mission of making the world sane again. Uh, You'll be able to opt for a paid subscription. The existing podcast will remain exactly the same. It'll always be free, but we just can't use ads to produce all of the whiz-bang, wonderful or inspiring, amazing stuff that we want to provide to you. So you'll have the option of paying a monthly fee for extra things like video blogs and recommendations and bonus rants and live streams with special guests, maybe even real-time Zoom cocktail hours with yourself and yours truly. So if you think that you may even potentially, possibly, might conceivably be somewhat, a little bit maybe interested in becoming a founding member of Team Convo Squad, register your interest now No obligation at all. You don't have to follow it up. Just get on the pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-subscription list by emailing the word subscribe to uncomfyconvos at gmail.com. That's U-N-C-O-M-F-Y-C-O-N-V-O-S at gmail.com. There's no obligation yet, but you will get a benefit for being one of the first to opt in. So open your mail app now. Don't leave it. Don't don't think oh, I'll do it later. Just open it now and uh, just type subscribe and then the email address uncomfyconvos at gmail.com. U-N-C-O-M-F-Y-C-O-N-V-O-S. Either way, one thing we'll do uh, with Team Convo Squad is give you your own unique feed of this show with no ads and a special bonus segment at the end of the show called First Date Questions. This is something that I used to play around with on my old show, uh, and it's a lot of fun. I basically treat the guests like we're on a first date and pepper them with weird, off-the-wall, counterintuitive, unusual questions that's sort of like a a psychological Rorschach test that they have to answer in real time, and they don't know what they're going to be asked. Uh, It's a lot of fun. It'll be uh, just special for paid subscribers, but for the next few weeks, just to give you all a taste of what it's like, I'll be doing free first date questions with my guests, available to all listeners. So when you hear me at the end of today's show, tell the guest that subscribers are about to get first date questions and goodbye to the rest of you and so on, uh, don't be confused. That's why you're hearing it. We're just playing around with the format and giving it to you for free. So you're welcome. Uh, Whether you want to subscribe or not, either way is totally fine, but you will get your first date questions, which are a wonderful way of sort of getting under the skin of people, not in a bad way, but just sort of understanding something about the guests that you wouldn't get from a conversation that's about their field of expertise. 
So send us that email, subscribe to uncomfyconvos at gmail.com, U-N-C-O-M-F-Y-C-O-N-V-O-S at gmail.com. Keep an ear out for your premium content opportunity in coming weeks and enjoy the show. G'day, humans. I am currently sitting on the floor of a whitewashed villa in the Greek islands on my summer holidays, my winter holidays. We have winter holidays in Australia where it has been raining pretty consistently for about eight months straight with horrendous storms and floods for much of the east coast of Australia. Here in the Greek islands, it is much more pleasant. Excuse my privilege, white privilege, male privilege, financial privilege, etc. But it's delightful. And as a result, I haven't been able to articulate much about Roe versus Wade being overturned in the United States. However, when the draft opinion was leaked from the Supreme Court a few months ago, I did do an episode about it, which if you missed, I encourage you to listen to. It's partly my thoughts and partly an excerpt from a fiery conversation that I had with Joe Rogan back in 2017 about Roe v. Wade. It's the May 6th, 2022 episode of Uncomfortable Conversations. Go back and take a listen. If you want my thoughts about Roe, I won't re-articulate them here, but it's enormously depressing um, and enormously depressing because the only way around it would seem to be a long-term overhaul of American democratic institutions, norms, and procedures. I just want to point to one thing that is getting overlooked a lot in these recent weeks, which is a Supreme Court decision that came down shortly after the overturning of Roe, which is much more consequential for far more people, which is that the Supreme Court stripped the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency of its ability to regulate uh, power plants and their carbon emissions which basically means that the sole tool that American democracy uses to curb carbon emissions and to try to create a plan to avoid climate chaos is now neutered. The ability of what was then the Obama administration to set rules about carbon emissions has been annihilated by the Supreme Court. And while the Roe decision is very important for a lot of women in a number of American states, the inability for the world's largest carbon emitter to get its hands around the problem of our ever-growing climate chaos is going to be far more wide-reaching in its impact. I mean, now they were talking about not tens of millions of women being impacted, but billions of people all over the world who took no part in the American democratic process whatsoever and bear no culpability for the decisions of the Supreme Court. I mean, at least if you're in America, yes, you can be furious, but hey, you are part of the demos that has given rise to this Supreme Court. Whatever has happened, you may be a Democrat, but if you're a Democrat, there's something that your side of politics was not able to do, that was not able to convince, persuade. You were not able to make the case sufficiently well to a sufficiently large number of your fellow countrymen to get across the line a Hillary Clinton presidency, for example, in which case the Supreme Court would look completely different. So not to blame the victim, but 
you're not entirely victims if you're Americans, not the same way that a Bangladeshi who will be suffering from disrupted monsoons that will destroy the rice harvest and may cause hundreds of millions of refugees to go flowing across borders and creating political instability and catastrophe across South Asia, for example. I mean, they had no say whatsoever in the political situation in the United States that has now given rise to an almost guarantee that the United States won't be able to do much about carbon emissions at a federal level. There is still some hope at a state level. States like California are very important in the rules that they make. There is still some hope, obviously, from private industry to drive this. But without the U.S. federal government being able to play a role, it's a worry. Here in Greece, they have this annual wind in the Cyclades, in the group of islands that I'm in, called the Meltemi, which is a, a dry, hot wind that sweeps through. And it's bad at the moment. It's strong. I was talking to a Greek guy at the car rental place on the little island I was in the other day. And I was saying, I didn't realize the Meltemi came this early. And he said to me, normally it does not come this early, but everything is different. And I said, what do you mean? He said, everything, weather, climate is all different. Everything is different. And I thought back to the eight months of floods that Australians have been enduring. And a few years before that, the most horrendous bushfires that we'd seen in generations. And now this little glimpse of the Meltemi coming at the wrong time is a harbinger of things to come. Things will be more chaotic, more unpredictable, and more expensive to clean up as a result of the decision by the Supreme Court about the government's ability to regulate carbon emissions from power plants. I know that a lot of Americans are leery about the idea of abolishing the filibuster, but it is simply unsustainable and untenable for a country that calls itself a democracy to require a supermajority of parliament to do anything. This shouldn't be how Congress works. It's not how the Founding Fathers wrote the Constitution. It's a made-up convention from the 20th century, and it has to go. You can't need 60 votes in a House of 100 representatives to get anything done in the Senate. It's just not workable. And a lot of people on the left say, well, yeah, but if you reduce it, if you get rid of the filibuster and you just need 50% plus one in the Senate, then, well, they'd be able to do anything. I mean, imagine when the Republicans are in power, they'd be able to pass all these laws. Yeah, that's what democracy is. I'm sorry that you hate your countrymen so much and think so little of them that you're not willing to entrust them with their, the democratic ability to express their own wishes. But the reality is that's democracy and you already live in an anti-democratic system where nine Supreme Court justices are deciding everything. And the only way that you can get around the problem of, of living in a, a system where Congress is gridlocked and essentially you have this legislative chamber in the form of the Supreme Court where nine unelected people are functionally making laws for you is to restore the democratic part of the democratic institution, what is supposed to be the most democratic part of the government, which is the legislative chambers. 
the House of Representatives and the Senate. So you can talk about the Electoral College for all of its craziness, and you can talk, you can rail against the Supreme Court, but that's the constitution that you have, and that's the system that you work in. If you want laws to get passed, laws that could be passed to guarantee women the right to an abortion nationally, laws that could be passed to enable the government to do more about climate change, then you need that to happen in the legislative chamber. The reason it can't happen in from the executive branch, the reason why the Supreme Court has stripped the government's ability to regulate carbon is not because the government couldn't pass a law. It's not because there aren't enough votes in Congress to pass a law that would empower the government to do something about climate chaos. It's because the, administ- the, the, uh, the administrative part of the government, in other words, the presidency, the executive branch, does not have the authority to do so on the basis of an old law that they're trying to invoke to give themselves the power to regulate power plants. What they need is a new law, and that would be fine. That would be constitutional. But you can't get a new law in the United States of America because people in Congress can't agree with each other, and and because they can't agree with each other, they can't get over the filibuster threshold. No other democracy requires a supermajority to pass everything. That's why Congress is stuck. So if you're furious about Roe and if you're frustrated about the Supreme Court, focus on things you can do something about. Focus on getting rid of the filibuster. That would be priority number one. Just as the right in America has spent decades, generations even, working towards this goal, building up the Federalist Society, which is this pressure group that encourages members of Congress and presidential candidates to sign on to appointing conservative justices from a list that the Federalist Society literally writes. That's what Donald Trump said. He said before his election, I will appoint Supreme Court justices exclusively from the list that the Federalist Society gives me. I'm not interested in this stuff. You tell me. I will be a good conservative. I will do what you want me to do. And that's one of the reasons why he won the election, because he had the backing of conservatives who hated his immorality, but believed that they could take him to the bank on the Supreme Court. And they could. He was good for his word on that. About the only thing he was good for his word on. Uh, you need that kind of a strategy. You need a multi-decade, multi-generational left-wing strategy to reform American democracy, to consider what you can do about the Electoral College, to pledge to get rid of the filibuster, which, yes, will have its downsides, but, hey, that's democracy, and to pledge to create a society, a culture, that is more understanding of other people's opinions and ideas, and that focuses the locus of power in conciliation and compromise instead of stridency and triumph or defeat. The way abortion has been figured out in every other democracy is not by instantiating it as a right that is somehow discovered in the Constitution. There is is no constitutional right to abortion in any other rich democracy, or maybe any other country, I don't know. I don't know whether there, I don't know whether whether like Nigeria has one either. But I mean, comparing apples to apples, the way that you normally hammer out a, a controversial issue like abortion is that you elect representatives who go into a parliament or a congress. They debate it and they hammer out a compromise. And the people who want abortion to be illegal altogether realize that they're not going to get that. And the people who want 
abortion on demand right up until birth, realize they're not going to get that. And so you settle on somewhere like most Western democracies do around maybe the 12-week, 15-week mark. America was unique up until Roe was overturned in having a constitutional right that went right up to the quickening, 22 to 26 weeks. It doesn't have to be that way. Democracies shouldn't have to function that way with nine unelected people in robes decreeing what takes place within their borders. Democracies should be hammered out, should be figured out through the messy process of negotiation. And that means having conversations. That means having conversations that are awkward, that are difficult, that require you to think the best of your opponents, that require you to hear what they're actually saying instead of demonizing them, and that require you to give a little bit of ground. Conversations that are tricky, that are hard, but that are so bloody necessary. Even if they are, quite often, uncomfortable. Today on the show, one of the most controversial and full-throated defenders of Western civilization against the hordes and barbarians of the left, Mr. Douglas Murray. Um, he is uh, prim- primarily an author. His new book is fantastic, especially as an audio book. It's called The War on the West, How to Prevail in the Age of Unreason. It comes off the back of uh, two previous books, the earlier one called The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race and Identity, from 2019 and from 2017, The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, Islam. Douglas is um, a gay Brit. I say that only because one always has to slot people into identity buckets at the moment, but it gives him a sort of a position from which he can articulate some of his concerns about the the bullshit we can peddle sometimes around uh, Islam, immigration, wokeism, race, gender, And he has a no-holds-barred intolerance for bullshit and a demand for nuance and rationality that is both refreshing and aggravating to people who dislike it. He receives criticism for sometimes being perhaps, well, his critics say, blind to the excesses of the right. One of the main things that has come up in my uh, uh, relationship with him that his critics have of of him that his critics always agitate me to bring up with him is his supposed relationship with uh, Hungary's uh, quasi-autocratic ruler, Viktor Orban. Um, uh, Viktor Orban, who has had led this sort of gently authoritarian, I say gently, uh, facetiously, uh, regime in Hungary, was a big fan of Douglas Murray's book, The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, Islam, and it influenced Orban's thinking about closing Hungary's borders. You know, Hungary faces the has a, has a controls essentially the border to the entire European Union, and closing that border during the Syrian refugee crisis. And that controversial decision has subsequently been blended up with Orban's attacks on opposition media outlets and opposition politicians, and so on, into a, a miasma of uh, of criticism that has then reflected onto people whom Orban is is a, is a fan of, such as Douglas. Don't worry, <clears throat> I get to that, and I raise it with, uh, with Douglas, and you will hear him respond in a way that I haven't heard him uh, respond before, because I haven't heard him really pressed on it uh, before. 
I hope you enjoy this. Douglas is also an associate editor of The Spectator, uh, the learned conservative magazine. He's a columnist at the New York Post and at The Sun. He really needs... Oh, you may have seen seen him on Bill Maher's panel show recently, but he needs no more introduction from me. I hope you enjoy this conversation with the one and only Douglas Murray. You can be as naked as you want. My God, I didn't know that. I wouldn't have put on all my best outfits. (laughs) My producer should have told you. (laughs) Unbelievable. Yes. Here I am in my my glad rags. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Sometimes. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? Oh, so nice to speak finally. I'm so sorry about the week. Uh, That's all right. That day turned out to be a nightmare, but. Uh, you know all about that with little ones. Oh, my goodness. But you don't have little ones. Mm-mm. No. I don't, know. How old are yours? Four, going on five. Wow. Mm. Great age. <laughs> it's a great age, actually. Yes. It's a great it's, age. Because I don't really like babies. Right. You know? I, don't, I don't like yeah, little, yeah. You know, little lizard creatures yeah. slimy yeah. and screaming. So it's nice to be over that and to have little people. Um, but it's my own fault for living in such a silly time zone. Well, I do a Sky Australia on Sunday nights my time because doing it otherwise means 5.30 a.m. in my time zone. And I said, no, that's not how I want to start my week. <laughs> no, not exactly. And you've moved to New York now. Yeah, I'm a New Yorker now. How long have you been there? I've been here a year. Um, as you know, I mean, it's a fantastic city. It's great. It's got a lot of detractors. I mean, you lived here for a bit, didn't you? Yeah, I lived there for. I've lived there for more of my adult life than anywhere else. I lived there for twelve years. I did the predictable thing that new newcomers do, which is I started in the uh, in Manhattan in Chelsea uh, on Eighth uh, Avenue and Eighteenth Street, and then I moved to the uh, to the Lower East Side to Alphabet City to East Third between uh, B and C, and then I moved out to Brooklyn Heights, and then I moved to Park Slope. You start sort of uh, besotted by the neon lights and you want to be as close to it all as you as you possibly can. And then you gradually realize that there is a premium that one puts on space and parkland. So did you move uh, mid-pandemic or was it post-pandemic in your mind? And was it uh, last was the summer? Reason? It wasn't yeah, right. the reason, but I mean, it was last summer as I thought I would swoop into the city and get an apartment for nothing. And uh, other people had had the same idea. Right. Maybe hundreds of thousands. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I had the great idea during the pandemic of buying a house because I thought now is finally the time mm. because nobody else is going to want to do this during a pandemic. Yeah, exactly. It turns out everybody else in Australia and the world nothing fucking else to do. And uh, they had money that they had nothing to spend it on. Just at the top of the market. Excellent move just before it started softening again. Um, I love your new book. Uh, it's always lovely to, to hear your voice reading it as well. Um, which, oh, uh, thank you. Which makes me, um, which makes up for the fact that that I can't hear you on a, a weekly podcast. But at least I, I hear dollops of you on uh, on when you read your book. Well, uh, as I always say, I I always quote my late friend Clive James whenever anyone says I love your book. I say, uh, don't be afraid to say that publicly. <laughs> oh clive wonderful clive i I think um the interesting for people who haven't read it yet i think the 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 sense that i get from most people who are fed up with wokeness is Mm -hmm. is that 
its heart's in the right place, but it's gone a bit too far. That um, that you know, Me Too was extremely necessary in order to correct for uh, imbalance, power imbalance between mm-hmm, the sexes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but maybe it went a little bit too far. But it's on the whole a good thing that you know maybe the race riots went a little bit too far in 2020. But the world is much better for now being as racially aware as it is. That maybe there's a bit of craziness on the transgender extremist front about there being no such thing as genders or no connection between biology and and gender. Uh, but that life is much better for trans people, and that's a that's a good thing. Your book sort of takes a different approach it's it's mm-hmm. it's not saying that to make an omelet you just have to break a few eggs what's wrong with the the view that i just articulated so i i my own view has been i, I read a bit about this in my previous book the madness of crowds that our era is an era of overcorrections. Uh, that is we see a problem that exists uh, we see an inequality that exists or an injustice that exists or has existed in the past and has remnants today, perhaps, and we decide to correct it. And in the process of correcting it, we overcorrect. And uh, I mean, I gave a lot of examples in the Mads of Crowds that that happens in a whole range of issues, sex, sexuality, gender, race. And, and that is, so for instance, um, uh, you know, nobody would deny that women in the past have not had the same abilities as men to make life, certain life choices uh, in order to make up for that. Uh, a certain type of feminist says, for instance, we don't need men. <laughs> men are useless um, and much more. Uh, and in the process, they think, I, th- I think this is the rationale, certainly some, some of it is the rationale, is that the result is you sort of overswing like that, and it means at some point you get to fairness, equality, or whatever you call that middle bit of the pendulum. Um, there's a lot of things in our time that have had similar um, uh, trajectories, some of the ones you mentioned. Uh, I'm very wary of this as a technique, not least because I think nobody knows when they've overcorrected for long enough. Nobody knows when it's time to stop. And nobody knows the damage that the overcorrection may have done. You know, the period in which you've rubbed certain people's faces in something uh, in the name of achieving victory because you mixed up victory and equality. Um, but if you so, don't know, then wouldn't the argument be, well, one has to do it because the injustice needs to be remedied. So life ain't perfect, but got to give it a shot. Yeah, you You'd have to agree on the exact nature of the injustice. And unfortunately, it's the nature of our time again, that certain fine-tuning experiments are being carried out on our societies by people who appear to be wearing boxing gloves. Uh, it's like watching a brain surgeon doing the operation, wearing mittens. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's, for instance, uh, you mentioned the Me Too uh, era post-2017. You know, uh, you, 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 there's a lot you could say about what you might deal, what you might do to deal with a certain type of predatory mayor. Uh, is any of it solved by, for instance, slogans like believe all women? Almost certainly not. This is, this is dealing with a very finely balanced issue, holding boxy gloves. Uh, it makes no more sense to say believe all women than it would be to say believe all men. 
Uh, it's a deranging claim. It's like saying, believe all people with blue eyes. Um, <laughs> right, but I think that believe so, all women actually became a right-wing talking point in the sense that I think it was originally believe women. I think that whoever coined that had said, you know, when women say that they've been assaulted, believe them, believe women. And then yeah, Fox even, even that gear and said, "Well, no, no, no." And they say that believe all women, even even that believe women itself is a great thing. Why believe men? Believe men? Believe but women? What's it, what does it mean? Are, are people individuals with individual uh, cases and individual complaints, or, or are they simply be lumped in uh, by their chromosomal grouping? Well, isn't um, it pointing? Isn't it pointing to what it sees as a, a, a tilted scale in the sense that? There, there had been a tendency to believe men's claims of being assaulted, but there had been a tendency to sort of think that women were getting a little bit carried away when they said that there was something wrong with having their bums slapped in the office. Well, again, I mean, we'd have to be so specific to be to, to know what we were talking about. I mean, of course, it doesn't help that, of course, the Me Too uh, issue was all carried out on the worst possible terrain, which was the terrain of Hollywood. I mean, if you wanted to very subtly alter the relations between sexes, the sexual etiquette of our species, it's not a good idea to base it on Hollywood, the most unlike anywhere else place on earth, the place which actually came up with the term the casting couch, the place where people actually use their sexual wiles and their attractiveness to advance. You know, it's not a very good way to base any reformulation of etiquette. So what I'm saying is just again and again, when there is a, pro even if there is a problem identified, which could be addressed, we just deal with it in these incredibly fumbling, ill thought out, non-specific ways. And in the process, you know, solve very little. I mean, we've just seen with the Depp Heard trial, one of the consequences of, you know, believe women, which is that the ACLU backed her Amber Heard and Amber Heard in court kept on proving herself to be a liar. Frankly, she kept contradicting her own evidence, something which juries really don't like. It's quite hard to watch Amber Heard's performance and keep saying, believe women, mm. you know, at the very least say, well, look, it's incredibly tricky and deal with it on a case-by-case -case basis and hope to hell that it never ends up in court any more often than it has to. But, you know, these things are just much more complex than our age likes to pretend. It's an era of hashtags and um, there's very little you can, you can achieve with a hashtag. Uh, remember, I, I mean, even on really specific ones, like, do you remember uh, Bring Back Our Girls? Do you remember that one? What was that one again? They're also bring many. back our of course because they go by at such yeah. a rate. I, I mean, our girls good thing in my memory, but I don't the know. 300, 300 schoolgirls in the northeast of Nigeria about a decade yes. ago abducted yes. by Boko Haram. Everybody busily hashtagged away. Uh, a lot of the girls have never been returned. Some of them were. Many of them were basically uh, um, uh, held captured by their hostages who got them with Stockholm syndrome. My point is simply that, you know, there's this sort of tendency to think we can solve these things in this era by these silly means. And, and I think, I think we've, we should just be much more careful. And, you know, there are some of them that are silly. Uh, some of the sexual etiquette stuff is basically silly. But some of it, when it comes to things like race, 
should be really darn careful, really specific. Make sure you're, make sure that, that, that this brain surgery is being done by level-headed people, not maniacs or from any direction. There are a couple of things that I could say to that and take whichever one you want. One would be there had been a general sense amongst people who'd been historically shat on or who belonged to groups that had been historically shat on that the brain surgeons just hadn't done a good enough job. The, the brain surgeons kept telling us, oh, look, we're going to deal with this, the brain surgeons being, the, I suppose, the smaller liberals. We're going to deal with this with finesse and egalitarianism and uh, equality before the law. And there were people who felt excluded from the general... Uh, sort of uh, ascendancy of well-being in the West who said, but it's not going quickly enough. We're still feeling like we're demeaned in our daily lives. Mm -hmm. We still feel like there's casual racism and casual sexism and that the justice system doesn't take seriously even extreme uh, transgressions by people who enjoy the benefits of, uh, of, of walking through life without their reality being questioned. And um, so we need to, to do something more. So sometimes maybe you do need a, a boxing glove rather than a scalpel. But the other point I would make mm. is, a, is a bigger one, which is I think you're going further in this latest book. I think what you're saying here is more like what you were saying in The Madness of Crowds. But in The War on the West, I think you're pointing to a deeper <clears throat> excuse me, problem with where the left has gone, which is not just that it's an overcorrection, a, a sort of an over-tactical correction to good strategic aims, but actually that the strategic aims have become fundamentally yes. misguided. Fundamentally bad. And, and illiberal. Yes. Yes. Exactly. yes. yes. Right. Well, that's true. I mean, what you just laid out in your first uh, comment there is, is, is what was called the gradualist approach. Um, that the way there were historical um, unfairnesses uh, that had occurred, uh, they could be rectified gradually. And the generation after generation uh, things were getting broadly better. Uh, that was sort of the, 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 I mean, since we're all downstream of American culture, really in the West countries like Australia and my own country, birth, Great Britain, we're essentially downstream from American culture. And in American culture, the gradualist approach had been, had been pretty popular. Um, there had been very concerted efforts since the 1960s to, for instance, increase black representation at, co at uh, elite colleges and others. Uh, there'd been a very concerted effort to make sure that integration was proved and that 13% of Americans who uh, counted as black Americans did, you know, felt more part of the nation than they had before the civil rights era. This gradualist approach, I would argue, was, was not perfect, but but was, was always getting somewhere. And as you say, there are some people who say, say, well, that didn't get me where I wanted to get fast enough, or it didn't get me everything I want, or there are things in life that I would like, and I don't know what I can blame them on, but this one is available and is useful. That people seem to take notice where it's used. And all of that and much more has gone on in recent years, never more so than since the uh, killing of George Floyd two years ago, um, which was one of the catalyst moments when people, I think completely incorrectly, interpreted this appalling, appalling event as being not just the prism through which to look at policing in America, but the prism through which to look at all race relations in America 
and as a result, all relations in the wider West. And that is, for all sorts of reasons I try to outline the book, a uh, very, very dangerous path to go down. I mean, let me give you one very quick example of that. Mm. Um, every year in America, thousands of black Americans are killed. And they're not killed by police violence. They're killed by other black Americans. That includes, by the way, hundreds of children every year. Hundreds of black children killed every year in America by shootings carried out by other black, uh, black Americans, uh, black Americans are 10 times more likely between the ages of 14 and 70 to carry out an act of violence using a gun than either white Americans or Hispanic Americans. Now, having laid out those, that very serious problem, would it be true to say that the reason for that is racism? or white supremacy, or institutional racism. It could certainly be one factor. It might be the entire factor. It would seem to me unlikely, but we have entered an era where there's only one answer for everything. And the answer for everything like that must be racism, or white supremacy, or institutional racism. And I think that this is a totally inadequate attempt to almost willfully misunderstand problems that are in front of us, which are actually very complicated and have a lot more dimensions than we seem to be willing to cope. It also requires that we redefine those terms, basically. So, I mean, now <clears throat> I hear white supremacy used in a casual way to basically just mean the sort of invisible embedded power structures of the, mm. of the West, of the society that we live in and it's just a proxy for anything really that you don't like about the way that society is currently mm. organized you guys it used to be so specific yeah it used to be a very specific thing it was it, it was only ever really utilized as a term to describe the type of people who think that they are superior to other people because of the color of their skin you know and and right. that, that would be right and that they should dominate over other people and would actively like to see that happen I mean, that used to be, it's not a perfect definition, but it used to be roughly the definition we meant when we used the term like that. But, but as you say, I mean, we live in this era of also of, um, of definition spillage and expansion. Uh, I was speaking a little while ago to a South African journalist who happens to be a black woman who said to me that she lives in a white supremacist society. And I said, how can you say you live in South Africa in a white supremacist society? You might say you live in a society where some white South Africans still have a disproportionate amount of wealth, but you live in a country where all of the government, all of the cabinet are black. Hmm. Uh, how on earth could you actually be living in a white supremacist society? And the answer is she doesn't. She's just redefined the term um, uh, to make life a bit more comfortable for herself and her own argument. Yeah, right. Well, she lives, I mean, I assume she said something like, I live in a society that's dominated by capitalism and by capitalist ideals and by mega corporations that are peopled by white men in a country. She didn't do that, so she could have done. Yeah, she could have done. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, where there's a passage in, in your latest book that is quite eye-opening where you actually sort of take on the challenge of defining what is good about the, the West. I actually want to, I want to, I want to play a bit from the audio book yeah, because too. it's so rare to hear someone actually full-throatedly 
respond to the the charge that the West is is fallen. And I'll play here. I don't have it to hand, but you know the passage that I'm talking about, right? Where uh, Mark Lamont Hill has asked the yes, yes. The, the, the you know Chris Rufo, yeah, 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 Chris Rufo, what's good about about whiteness? And you sort of actually take a take a a, a punt on that. Have a listen. So I knew the form and watched with interest, but Lamont Hill is no fool, and when he interviewed Rufo, he had a devastating question up his sleeve. The question was this. If I were to say to you now, Christopher, what do you like about being white, what would you say? Rufo is also no fool, and he knew that he had just been led onto an unbelievably dangerous, potentially career-ending landmine. At first, he laughed nervously and struggled for an answer. It's such an amorphous term, it's like a census term, he said, but Lamont Hill pushed, asking Rufo to indulge him for a moment. After all, as Lamont Hill said, if you were to ask me some things I like about being black, I could talk about cultural norms, I could talk about tradition, I could talk about the kind of commonalities I feel around the diaspora. If I were to ask you, particularly if you are saying whiteness is a thing that is being constructed as negative and shouldn't be, Name something positive that you like about being white. Rufo tried to swerve once more by saying that a lot of public schools are claiming that things like timeliness, rationality, objectivity and the Enlightenment are being ascribed to a white identity and that this is wrong and they should be ascribed to all human beings. Lamont Hill said this was a straw man and reiterated that these were all negative things being ascribed to being white, while he was asking for something that was positive about being white. Rufo laughed and said, Again, I don't buy into the framework that the world can be reduced into these metaphysical categories of whiteness and blackness. I think that's wrong. I think we should look at people as individuals. I think we should celebrate different people's different accomplishments. I reject that categorization. I think of myself as an individual human being with my own capabilities, and I would hope that we could both judge each other as individuals and come to common values on that basis. Inevitably enough, Lamont Hill concluded that the ability to see yourself in this fashion was yet another example of white privilege. The reason the exchange was so interesting was that Lamont Hill knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that he was leading Rufo onto the most dangerous possible territory, both for him personally and for white people as a whole. If there are things that are bad about being white, then there must be things that are good about being white. What are they? There are, in fact, a number of ways this question might be answered, ugly though it is to even ask it. But a ducking of this issue most likely cannot go on interminably. The first way to answer it is to try to take the path that Rufo tried to take, that is, to say, basically, I do not want to see colour. I do not want to see people primarily through the prism of their skin pigmentation. I think that skin colour is essentially uninteresting and unimportant, and we should leave it at that. 
This is a perfectly respectable answer to give, and it is about the only answer that is survivable if asked such a question in any public forum today. The second way to answer it would be to step a little further along the same road as that, which is to say that effectively what is being described as white culture is in fact no more than a part of a universal culture, and that whereas some black people and people of other races might decide to cut themselves off from allowing other people to join their party, white people should take a different route, that what is called whiteness is something that can be open to all people, and that whereas the traditions and cultural norms of black Americans may try to be kept back solely for the enjoyment of other black people, white culture should not be identified in such a way and should almost be a synonym for something that is open to all. So, in an era that wishes to identify people along tribal lines, whiteness becomes a convening body for people of any background or skin colour who wish to engage themselves in an ongoing tradition known in shorthand as the Western tradition. Both of these are the softest options and eminently respectable. But there is a third option, which Lamont Hill must have known could be possible to tease out, and which he almost certainly knew that his interlocutor would not say. For this is the currently unacceptable answer, the nuclear answer. That answer, to someone asking what is good about being white, might go along something like the following lines. I don't especially think of myself as being white and don't particularly want to be cornered into thinking in such terms. But if you are going to corner me, then let me give you an answer to the best of my ability. The good things about being white include being born into a tradition that has given the world a disproportionate number, if not most, of the things that the world currently benefits from. The list of things that white people have done may include many bad things, as with all peoples, but the good things are not small in number. They include almost every medical advancement that the world now enjoys. They include almost every scientific advancement that the world now benefits from. No meaningful breakthrough in either of these areas has come for many centuries from anywhere in Africa or from any Native American tribe. No First Nation wisdom ever delivered a vaccine or a cure for cancer. White people founded most of the world's oldest and longest established educational institutions. They led the world in the invention and promotion of the written word. Almost alone among any peoples, it was white people who, for good and for ill, took an interest in other cultures beyond their own, and not only learned from these cultures, but revived some of them. Indeed, they have taken such an interest in other peoples that they have searched for lost and dead civilizations as well as living ones to understand what these lost peoples did in an attempt to learn what they knew. This is not the case with most other peoples. 
No Aboriginal tribe helped make any advance in understanding the lost languages of the Indian subcontinent, Babylon, or ancient Egypt. The curiosity appears to have gone almost entirely one way. In historical terms, it seems to be as unusual as the self-reflection, the self-criticism, and indeed the search for self-improvement that marks out Western culture. White Western peoples happen to have also developed all the world's most successful means of commerce, including the free flow of capital. This system of free market capitalism has lifted more than one billion people out of extreme poverty just in the 21st century thus far. It did not originate in Africa or China, although people in those places benefited from it. It originated in the West. So did numerous other things that make the lives of people around the world immeasurably better. It is Western people who developed the principle of representative government, of the people, by the people, for the people. It is the Western world that developed the principles and practice of political liberty, of freedom of thought and conscience, of freedom of speech and expression. It evolved the principles of what we now call civil rights, rights that do not exist in much of the world, whether their peoples yearn for them or not. They were developed and are sustained in the West, which, though it may often fail in its aspirations, nevertheless tends to them. All this is before you even get on to the cultural achievements that the West has gifted the world. The Matura sculptures excavated at Jamalpurtila are works of exceptional refinement, but no sculptor ever surpassed Bernini or Michelangelo. Baghdad in the 8th century produced scholars of note, but no one ever produced another Leonardo da Vinci. There have been artistic flourishings around the world, but none so intense or productive as that which emerged around just a few square miles of Florence from the 14th century onward. Of course, there have been great music and great culture produced for many civilizations, but it is the music of the West, as well as its philosophy, art, literature, poetry and drama, that have reached such heights that the world wants to participate in them. Outside China, Chinese culture is a matter for scholars and aficionados of Chinese culture. Whereas the culture created by white people in the West belongs to the world, and a disproportionate swath of the world wants to be a part of it. When you ask what the West has produced, I am reminded of the groups of professors assigned to agree on what should be sent in a space pod into orbit in outer space to be discovered by another race, if any such there be. When it came to agreeing on what one musical piece might be sent to represent that part of human accomplishment, one of the professors said, Well, obviously, it will be Bach's Mass in B minor. No, averred another. To send the B minor Mass would look like showing off. To talk about the history of Western accomplishments is to be put at great risk of showing off. Do we stay just with buildings or cities or laws or great men and women? 
How do we restrict the list that we put up as a preliminary offer? Of course, you may dispute some of these details, or you may dispute whole swaths of it, think its tone wrong, does not show enough humility or self-deprecation. You may even say that this understated homily sounds triumphalist or otherwise in bad taste. But what cannot be disputed is the most devastating proof of all, which is the simple matter of footfall. A footfall that is entirely one-directional. For there is, even today, no serious movement of peoples in the world struggling to get into modern China. For all its financial prowess, the world does not wish to move to that country. It does want to move to America, and will go to extraordinary lengths, even the risk of life, to reach that goal. Similarly, there is no serious global effort to break into any of the countries of Africa. Indeed, a third of sub-Saharan Africans polled in the last decade said that they wanted to move. Where they want to move is clear. The migrant ships across the Mediterranean go only in one direction, north. The people-smuggling gangs' boats do not, halfway across the Mediterranean, meet white Europeans heading south, desperate to escape France, Spain or Italy in order to enjoy the freedoms and opportunities of Africa. No significant number of people wishes to participate in life among the tribes of Africa or the Middle East. There is no mass movement of people wishing to live with the social norms of the aboriginals or assimilate into the lifestyle of the Inuit, whether those groups would allow them in or not. Despite everything that is said against it, America is still the world's number one destination for migrants worldwide, and the next most desirable countries for people wanting to move are Canada, Germany, France, Australia, and the United Kingdom. The West must have done something right for this to be the case. So, if you ask me what is good about being white, what white people have brought to the world, or what white people might be proud of, this might constitute the mere beginnings of a list of accomplishments from which to start. And while we are at it, one final thing. This culture, that it is now so fashionable to deprecate, and which people across the West have been encouraged and incentivized to deprecate, remains the only culture in the world that not only tolerates, but encourages such a dialogue against itself. It is the only culture that actually rewards its critics. And there is one final oddity here worth noting. For the countries and cultures about which the worst things are now said are also the only countries demonstrably capable of producing the governing class unlike all of the others. It is not possible today for a non-Indian to rise to the top of Indian politics. If a white person moved to Bangladesh, they would not be able to become a cabinet minister. 
if a white Westerner moved to China, neither they nor the next generation of their family, nor the one after that, would be able to break through the layers of government and become a supreme leader in due course. It is America that has twice elected a black president, the son of a father from Kenya. It is America whose current vice president is the daughter of immigrants from India and Jamaica. It is the cabinet of the United Kingdom that includes the children of immigrants from Kenya, Tanzania, Pakistan, Uganda and Ghana, and an immigrant who was born in India. The cabinets of countries across Africa and Asia do not reciprocate this diversity. But it is no matter. The West is happy to accept the benefits this brings, even if others are not. This would have been one way for Rufo to answer that question. But it is understandable that he did not. For, at present, such a truthful answer remains at the very edges of permissible sayability. And, into the silence left by the impossibility of saying what is true, anything and everything can roam. Why do you do? Why did you write that? And, and why is it so rare to hear that? That passage has, has brought a lot of criticism already, as well as a certain amount of praise. Um, and I expected that because I'm aware, as I say in the book, that this is a nuclear answer. Uh, the, 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 the issue in question there is, um, it, it comes down to one of the central ones. I describe in the war on the West, what I describe as the war on white people. That is the, the, the belief that uh, we believe in our society essentially that all overt forms of racism are repugnant. That if you were to say, you know, I don't know. There are forms of uh, black behavior that are so exclusive to black people and it's because they're black. You would think if somebody did that, oh gosh, that's a racist person right there. Uh, and you would think that on any other group of people, but, but people are allowed to do it with white people today, which by the way, among other things, as I say, is a big, big um, mistake because you're dealing with um, being highly insulting and demeaning towards majority populations, uh, white people still being majority in countries like America, Australia, and Britain. Very, very, it seems like a very unwise thing to do tactically to tell any, any minority group that they're worthless, guilty historically because of the color of their skin, uniquely guilty the color of their skin. It seems like a very strange thing to do uh, to a minority group and probably wouldn't work whatever size that minority was. It's a very unlikely thing to work against the majority. Um, and yet that's one of the things that's been attempted in recent years, what I describe as the war of the West. And um, what I did in this passage was to say, okay, here's a journalist who uh, confronted another journalist, a black journalist confronting a white journalist in America saying, what's good about being white? And the journalist said, the white journalist said, uh, I don't really like to think in those terms, which is perfectly reasonable. Those are the only career, the career surviving way you could answer that question. So I don't, I don't talk about those terms. And I say, because the interviewer, Mark Lamont Hill, who's black, I've met before in Doha, um, Mark Lamont Hill um, says, well, I could tell you what I like about being black. Being black, I, 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 I have a great sense of community. I love the music, various other things. 
um, so what's good about being white? And Rufo dodges it again. And um, I said, basically, there are only three answers we can give to this. One is to say what what Rufo did, which was to say, I just don't like it. And to be fair to him, that's pretty much the way I'd answer that question as well. Uh, I don't really want you to drag me into your sort of racial games. You know, uh, I'd like to ask to be past that. The second way he could, answer, could have answered it was to say, effectively, it doesn't matter because whiteness is effectively the United Nations race. So um, you might want to claim that being black is an exclusive thing and people can't join if they're not exactly of the right background or whatever, but, but white people don't mind. We're, you know, we welcome all. And um, uh, to that extent, as I say, it's an integrationist project. That would be a perfectly reasonable thing to do as well. Mm. And I say... But then there's the sort of third option, the nuclear option, which which I give in a quote. It's not it's not what I'm saying directly is my view, but it's a pretty full throated, as you say, offer of what an answer could be. And that is to say, well, I'm going to tell you all of the things that white people have actually done and have given the world. And if you're going to tell me all the things that black people have given the world, let me tell you all the things that white people have given the world. And I hate to talk in those terms, but if you're going to if you're going to provoke people into that, this is the kind of answer you're going to get. And the list is pretty long. The accomplishments are pretty long. And um, as I say, this is an answer much to be avoided. It's not a desirable answer, but it would be the answer of people who are fed up with being told they've done nothing of any good. And I do fear that in this generation in particular, and I obviously give chapter and verse on the people responsible for this, in this generation in particular, uh, white people are being talked about and to in a way which I think is inevitably going to cause a backlash. Mm. Um, nobody wants to be told that their children are evil because of the color of their skin. Uh, no black parent would want that. No white parent want that but it's not being done in schools in america and elsewhere to black children anymore maybe there was a time when it was but it's not happening now it's white children who are told that they bear historic uh, crimes on their backs it's white children who are told that they are somehow born with some stigma caused by history and um, as I say, I think no good can come from this. And it's, it's the worst, the nastiest example of what I said earlier. was you know, a, a piece of fine tuning that needs to be carried out with exceptional care and is being carried out with just this brutishness and uh, a, 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 a sort of barbarism um, and, not, and, and a gleefulness, it has to be said. There is, there is in our age what I say, um, sub-quoting Nietzsche. There is a, there is a, there is a tone in the in the discussion that talks about justice, which sounds to me more like revenge. Hmm. What do you say, Douglas, to the the broad leftist who's a little bit fed up with wokeism, but generally thinks it's on the right side of history? Who's who hears what you just said and says, "Well, of course, no young white." child should be told that they're evil because of the color of their skin. That's not the point. That's just a misinterpretation that overly sensitive, fragile white people make when they're, when they're asked to reconcile themselves with the fact that their 
standing on the shoulders of a history of bloodshed and genocide, that the West wouldn't be what it is today were it not for its colonialism and its history of slavery and Jim Crow and oppression and genocide of indigenous peoples and so on. And we're just trying to get people to understand that from an early age so we have context. But, I mean, we're not standing on that. I mean, everyone's standing on a pile of bloody corpses. Who isn't? Who isn't? I mean, what what civilization or peoples in the world uh, are not standing on some violent past? The whole damn world's like that. The whole damn world was like that. Much of it still is today. I mean, for instance, everybody who lives in modern Nigeria, you could easily go there and say, now look, you were the people who sold your black brothers and sisters for centuries. You stole them and you sold them. And you should realize that everything you have today in Nigeria is a product of that. And you should atone and atone and atone. Whenever you have a child, you should tell the child the evil that their peoples have done. Wouldn't it be a weird thing to do? (laughs) Wouldn't it be strange? And would you expect a warm reception from the people of Nigeria if you invited them into this act of self-flagellation? Voltaire, remember, made the very important point centuries ago that actually arguably only the only thing even more evil than what the Europeans did in buying and trading in the souls of black Africans was what black Africans did to their brothers and sisters by stealing and selling. So... You could well, do yeah. this to everyone. You could do it to absolutely everybody on earth. You know, the Ottoman Empire was one of the widest ranging, uh, longest uh, 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 in time and geographical expansion of any empire in history. It was a very successful empire. But the Turkish people today are not expected to atone for the crimes of the Ottoman Empire. Much of Turkey's modern wealth, certainly its cities, some of the glories of its museums and much more come about because the Ottoman Empire was rapaciously uh, stealing and acquiring and, and expanding and much more. But, but nobody would expect to go to modern-day Turkey and say, look, because of this empire that finished in 1924, you guys have got some atoning to do and we're going to make you do it forever. So there's something in the, in, in, in the West that is peculiar here. And here's the thing. Um, it it builds off a virtue (laughs) because, of course, self-criticism is a virtue. Mm. Self-analysis, self-inspection, introspection, these these are values. Um, And and I'm all for them, and I'm not trying to stop anyone. I say this at the beginning of The War in the West. I'm not trying to stop anyone writing anything, researching anything, saying anything. More the merrier, I say. Fill your boots up. Uh, I actually think that we benefit from much in the discussion. Where I think we stop benefiting is where self-criticism turns into self-annihilation, where self-criticism becomes something else. And I think the moment it becomes something else is when a generation whose understanding of history is essentially only on the iniquities of their own past don't know the context both of that past and of the world at the time. I mean, the modern American schoolchild is told about slavery. They're now told by the paper of record, the New York Times, that their founding date should be moved uh, 150 years earlier to 1619. 
the, the, the date when slaves were first brought into the American continent. Um, they're told that their, that their founding must be reframed so that everything is to do with slavery. Here's something that almost no American school child realizes, which is everybody was slaving at the time that America came into being. The founding fathers weren't, um, weren't unusual in having slaves. Um, it was commonplace. The unusual thing in the West was doing away with it. That's for sure. That's for mm. sure. Uh, the, the, the British signed the act, the anti-slavery act into law in 1807 and spent decades patrolling the high seas at the high seas at very considerable cost of treasure and lives to try to stamp out slavery, not just in, uh, areas that Britain had control of, but everywhere in the world. That wasn't an easy exercise and it went on for decades. Um, we have in the world today, it's estimated about 40 million, four zero million slaves. That's more slaves than there were in the 19th century. And my worry is among other things that, that people are learning a version of the Western past, including Western iniquities, colonialism, racism, slavery. They're learning these things and they're learning them in a situation of complete context collapse. Mm. to use a, an internet era phrase, <laughs> they're, they're learning them in an era of total context collapse so that it seems that only we did these things and therefore only we are guilty and only we must atone. And this is to use again, a term that I, I, I use a lot. It's unfair. It's not just untrue. It's unfair to judge the Western past like that. There's a, I mean, you also make an interesting point about one reason why we're able to have the reckoning in the West is because we have descendants of the, of the slaves living amongst us, whereas in other civilizations like Arab countries, they don't have the descendants of their black slaves anymore because they castrated them all. So then they don't exist. That's right. Um, one might say, <clears throat> excuse me, it's early here, so I haven't had my coffee yet. Uh, and I'm forced, but so one might say that Turkey would be a better place if it were able to to deal a little bit more with its Ottoman history, the Armenians yeah. would certainly say that Turkey could yeah, for sure. of reckoning itself to for sure. history. But on the point of, of of ignorance, I do I think there's something something there. Uh, you know the the brightness with which the light of self criticism is shining at the moment does seem to 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 sort of swamp out everything else in our vision about the context of the past and. It's interesting that you cite Mark Lamont Hill because at, when I joined HuffPost Live as a presenter there, mm. he was one of the founding um, presenters as well, one of the founding hosts. And so oh, yeah, of course. Was yeah. Of us. And, he, and so I knew him very well and worked with him every day and was friendly with him. And <clears throat> he's an interesting person to have seen. He's, he's a good case study for me of what's happened to culture more broadly in the past 10 years of the focus on the relentless focus on division and culture warring over nuance and comedy. Mm -hmm. And I still remember one day, and my apologies, Mark, for throwing you under the bus, but I thought this was an, a revealing anecdote. One day he came up to me in the, in the half post office and he said, quick question. And this is a, a guy who has a PhD. He's a very, very learned guy. He goes, how many countries are there in Australia? What? And I said, what do you mean? He said, how many countries in Australia? I said, what do you mean how many countries are there in Australia? He said, it's a continent. 
right? How many countries are in Australia? <laughs> said, said, Mark, Australia is a country. He's like, just one country in the whole continent. I said, yeah, yeah, it's a continent and it's also a, it's a country. It's a, it's, a, it's just one country. He said, got it. And he walked away. Got it, got it. And I thought, uh-uh. I thought, what the fuck is going on with the American education system? Oh, you're not the first person to can, think this. That you, can, uh, you can have a doctorate and you can come out one of the most learned people. I mean, there's nowhere else to go after you've got a PhD. You know, you're as, mm-hmm. you're as well-educated mm-hmm. as the system can produce. Mm-hmm. And I'm not foolish enough to think that Australia is a terribly important country. You don't need to know how many countries there are in Australia. But a rudimentary understanding of global geography would, you might want to know what, like, the top 20 economies are. You know, you might want to have yeah. a, just a rough back-of-the-napkin sketch of what the, the sort of, you know, 10 to 20 most important Western democracies are all about, just, just vaguely, like just what is a country and what is not it's, a, a continent. It's a, very t- it's a very telling story. I was uh, doing Bill Moore on Friday night. Yeah, I heard that. It was good. And um, uh, we had great fun, but Bill, uh, Bill does this section, uh, did this section on Friday of, uh, of like Vox Pops with various people in America. And I don't want to sound like I'm being a snotty Brit laughing at American ignorance because you could get quite as many appalling answers from a, a box pop in the UK. I don't know. But I don't know about that, Douglas. I've had this yeah. argument with Americans in America where they say, oh, you can find stupid people everywhere. I say, actually, I don't think you can as easily. There, is, there as could be some people as easily. I think, I think there's an inevitability about the, the geographical isolation of America compared to, say, Britain. Um, where, you know, what about the geographical the isolation of Australia? Well, that's true. That's true. Uh, I think it's the. I think. I think there's a gravitational pull of having a culture that large that has created mm-hmm. an enormous degree of self-absorption, that leads them yes. to have this sort of self-regard and ignorance of elsewhere. That, and this also comes back to the sort of woke crisis as well. That Americans are super superimposing and projecting their own parochial uh, sort of race oh, yes. to the whole rest of the world. You know, I mean, that's right. I mean, on countries like ours, which. Which 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 have our own problems, but they're not by any means replays of the American problem. It's not the same. I mean, I was ta- yeah. I was traveling in Europe with an American friend a few years ago, and we were in France, and he saw he called black people in France African Americans, you know, because that's just the term for black people, <laughs> you know, in his brain. I said they're not that's like that joke. That's like that joke in Bruno. Do you remember where uh, um, uh, um, Sasha Baron Cohen? Sasha Baron Cohen. So, so he does this black, uh, he does, he does this sort of talk show where all of the audience are black and he, oh yeah, he brings out this baby he's adopted, flat, and, uh, he said, he says, you know, I, I got him from Africa. It's filled with African Americans. And one of the women in the audience goes, no, 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 those are Africans. And he says, I think that's racist. And, uh, and then they ask what he's called the child. And he says a traditional black American name, OJ. <laughs> Any, uh, but, but, <laughs> um, but yes, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, to go back to your point about Mark Lamont Hill, yeah, uh, Bill Maher there was, was, had this like, segment of, of going around and saying, you know, um, oh, I don't know, the, an interviewer said, to, to, it was just saying to people like things like, where is Venice, Italy? Which country is Venice, Italy at? And, you know, like, somebody's like, uh, um, uh, country of Europe or something like that. Mm. And, you know, and it was all like that. And one of them was like, oh, God, I should know this. I'm a teacher, you know. And um, 
it is there is a sort of self-absorption there's a, a just there is a failure undoubtedly of the american education system that's probably worse than the failure of education systems in other countries and and then there's of course the the, the i mean i do think that people in that situation are particularly susceptible to one explanation for things um you know i mean the idea that there is one lens to look at everything through i think you do end up being particularly susceptible to to you know um uh, omni uh, omnipresent omniscient single mm. claims if you don't realize the complexity of things and can't really cope with them so that for instance if you can just go well white supremacy or well colonialism well and you do see this, and I give an example in the book, it's a slightly cruel one, but I give the example of the War of the West of an interview that Damon Alburn of Blur gave some years ago. And when the subject of China came up and problems in China, he didn't know what to do other than to blame Britain. And his interviewer sort of says, well, what about like Mao and like Great March and so on? And it's, he just doesn't know about that. Because his only his only lens he can look at anything through in a sort of semi-educated way is the lens of it must be because of us, and that is that is itself what I've described in the past as a peculiar form of um, of colonialism itself. As the, the assumption that the world can only screw up if we've made it so. Yeah. Um, other people can't screw up on their own of their own accord. It must be us that did something. It's great self-absorption and, um, and also, of course, again, sort of against nature because most people want to think well of their country and their society and their past. It doesn't matter where you go. Most people kind of, you know, want to talk it up um, in the same way they want to support their national team in the World Cup. You know, and um, even if they don't take much interest in the sport, they kind of they have an instinct. They want their team to win, um, and then somehow in recent generations, you might say, that instinct has been inverted so that people want to think the worst of themselves as long as they're from the West. Well, but it they've depends been taught how, that. I think it depends how you're defining themselves, Douglas. So I think they've chosen like w what are the contours of the team. What are the contours of one's mm -hmm. team? So I think there's a there's a sub cohort of the West that has thrown its lot in behind what they regard as being a morally that they believe themselves to have the moral courage to betray the broader team of of uh, which they regard as being perverted teams of nationalism, right. patriotism, uh, conservatism, and throw their lot in with a team of the oppressed, mm -hmm. the morally yes. Well, that's it. Should also be said that that also has a a justification of a kind. I mean, it's perfectly, it's, it's understandable to exit the 20th century thinking that nationalism is a tainted thing. Mm. You know, it's, it's, Especially I, I don't agree coupled with to racial privilege. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's an understandable takeaway from the 20th century. It, it's just that again, I mean, it's, it's wildly simplistic. Uh, nationalism can go bad and can go wrong senses of national belonging can go wrong and um we saw that a bit of that in the 20th century but the take to, to take away from that that as a result the form of belonging you should disdain is national belonging and you should seek belonging by for instance race or gender or sexuality or something 
seems to me unwise. I mean, as I've often joked, you know, absolutely everything can go wrong. I mean, the Trojan Wars were caused by love. Um, nobody would think of banning love as a result and not also, stop I mean, future wars. You know, if you wanted to take lessons from the 20th century, sure, you could say that what happened was, you know, that nationalism didn't help. But racial identity politics certainly helped even less. Oh, absolutely. What was worst about the Nazis? Was it that they loved Germany or was it that they hated Jews? Exactly. Exactly. There's also a sense in which I think you're frustrated at the at moral cowardice masquerading as moral courage. That, you know, I I often say to my woker friends who regard themselves as being morally superior to the flawed heroes of the past. You know, I know that you would not have been bucking slavery if you were alive in the 1700s. Of course. Because you're not taking a morally courageous stance now. You would have to be mm. demonstrating to me that you believe in something that 99% of your peers think it's, it's horrendous to believe in. But you believe in a mm. whole bunch of things that the elites in our societies condone. So you're a yes. conformist. That's right. I mean, it, the, one of the most important points that Jordan Peterson has made in public and has tried to embed in the public consciousness is, is the, is the, that notorious one that, you know, people always think that if they were alive in the second world war, they'd be Oscar Schindler. Mm. Uh, no, they wouldn't. Highly unlikely. We know because there was a test and there weren't very many Schindlers. Right. Most people would go along with it. Most people do. Yeah. That's the nature of people. They go along with whatever the thing is, and some of them will enjoy it mm. on top of that. And that is an incredibly important insight because you can apply it to case after case in history. I mean, you know, consider, consider the, 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 the incredible um, difficulty that Britain had getting off the slave trade. The, the country needed to pay off the firms that were going to lose money. And that payment wasn't, the interest on that payment wasn't fully paid down by the exchequer in London until I think 2016. That's okay. pretty amazing that the, the, the debt the country took on itself. Now, some people say, yes, but that was paid to the slavers. There was no other way to stop the trade than to compensate the people who were going to lose money. That, that it wasn't inevitable that that was going to happen. It's the same in America. You know, the founding fathers, almost certainly, if you look at what Jefferson in particular wrote, um, almost certainly believed that slavery at some point was going to have to be dealt with and eradicated in the American continent. But they knew, they knew that they could not hold what was about to be the United States together if they had that fight first. Now, looking back, everybody thinks, I know what I would have been. I'd have been an anti-slavery activist. I'm like, sure, you think you would. You think you know you would. In reality, are you cleverer than Thomas Jefferson? Mm. Do you know more? Is your, is your instinct so much more acute than his was that in 1787, you'd have known exactly where the arc of history was going to go and would have held this nascent republic together. Remembering, by the way, that at that point, there were no successful republics in the world. Right. 
And look, it's, okay. it's, I mean, it's an easy test, isn't it? I mean, to that person, you simply say, if you do have that perspicacity that puts you above a Jefferson, then show me the thing right now that you're going out on a limb and advocating for that other people won't come around to until yes. another hundred years time. What is well, that? You know, I, that reminds me, Josh, of a thing. I mean, you, you'll appreciate this, uh, that I mean, I have, had an edit, have an editor who said to me many years ago, a very good rule of thumb. He said, um, you should always assume that because every age in the past has done the stuff that we think is just abhorrent and nuts, um, um, recognize that we're almost certainly doing things today that are as well. Yes. And try to work out what those things are yeah. and stop them. And that, that's a very useful exercise. It's right. I mean, I did, yeah, I did a show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival about this sort of stuff and about why social media is deranging us just before the pandemic. And I, 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 tried, to, I tried to throw up in the com to comedic effect a few of those things that might come down the pike. I mean, I, I just plucked a couple. One could be the way we farm animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Richard Dawkins thinks that. I can only yeah. imagine that in 100 years' time, people will go, they knew these things were sentient, and they nonetheless treated them as if the only imperative was to get the kilo of a pound of <laughs> the, uh, the price of a, mm. of a kilo or pound of flesh to the lowest possible price, with no regard yeah. for them. Like, why were you complicit in that? Another could be, depending on how bad climate chaos is, the casual way that we fly about and and use uh, fossil mm -hmm. fuels. I could imagine in fifty years them watching movies of people just hopping on planes without a care in the world go and treating it like us slapping the ass of a woman in the office or like we look at Mad Men or, mm. or Dr. Smoke. Mm. Going, how, do they, how did they feel no shame whatsoever about getting on planes? You know, I don't know. I'd, add, I'd, add, I'd add one that's always on my mind these days. I'd say um, uh, parents deciding that if, the child, if their child in, in the ages between 1 and 10 ever dresses in the... Um, dress of more commonly associated with the opposite sex that the child is trans and should at some point be put on drugs and then if it's a girl got a double mastectomy i would have thought that um a later age might look at that and think gosh that was a that was a weird weird time well again it come it will come down to whether or not we regard that as having been part of an overcorrection that was nonetheless on the right side of history because trans people have subsequently gotten more acceptance and that made it worth it doesn't it yeah i mean you'd you'd have to you'd have to accept that experimenting on a lot of kids was worth it uh uh, it's, a, uh, it's not not one I could um, you, you sound go along with. I'm very skeptical of that. I'm, I'm horrified by it. I'm pretty confident that not very many years from now, people are going to look at what was done in the last decade in this regard and think they said this was progress. One of the risks in all this, Douglas, I mean, you know, one of the things that strikes me you're w most worried about is all of this craziness provoking a backlash from mm. and it's the it's my main it's the main thing that concerns me um you know as a gay jew i don't want people thinking about themselves as their identities because i know yeah yeah you're you're in a, you're in a very <laughs> precarious position there you're like <laughs> absolutely first <laughs> exactly that's right. that's right well not right now you know not right now you know right sure. now the gays are uh are, are, are the cool club and uh, the well although well, you can see where that would have a backlash at yeah the moment. yeah i mean 
But so the, my, then my worry becomes, and the reason why people worry about your work is you're so articulate in pointing out the, the shittiness of the extremes of the left, that then at what point do you worry that you're playing into the right's hands? I mean, you know, yeah. people have tweeted at me going, you know, you, you're, you're talking to Douglas or you're friends with Douglas, and here's a man who goes on Tucker Carlson to defend Victor Orban and goes and hands <laughs> with Victor Orban. And here's a, you know, Orban is a man who is undermining democracy in Europe, but he loves Douglas Murray and Douglas is chummy with him. Doesn't, doesn't that? Well, first of all, like I can't, I can't apologize for going on the most viewed television programs in America. <laughs> um, you can call it, um, media promiscuity or whatever you like, but, um, uh, my uh, my work inevitably includes me going on shows with hosts who a lot of people disagree with. Um, as for Orban, I mean, uh, I always try to see a prime minister or president or senior politicians of any country I go to. And nobody takes any notice of that until it's uh, uh, a leader they don't like. But, uh, I mean, if Victor Orban calls me up, discovers I'm in... Uh, hungry and asks me to come and see him for a couple of hours of discussion. I'm not going to say no. But didn't um, you go there specifically with Steve Bannon for some kind of a sort of a, a hobnob about the problems with? No, I I'm, with I managed to discover I managed to discover that Steve Bannon uh, had had uh, fibbed about um, he didn't know that I was there and I knew he was there and I don't think I've said this publicly before, but. Uh, I discovered that Steve Bannon was waiting to see Orban next. And uh, I said to Orban, met Mr. Bannon before. He said, no, he hadn't. And I had the great pleasure of seeing Steve Bannon's face when he realized that I knew that he had been going around the world telling people he'd managed to swing the last Hungarian election and they'd never met. He had nothing to do with it. It was always part of the Bannon thing that the, the people believed what he said about himself and his own influence. Um, right. The left-wing press in particular, they lapped that up. And he claimed that he claimed uh, credit for elections of people he'd never met. Um, so, you know, it's always interesting what you learn. It's always interesting what you learn, and I don't apologize for uh, that. I, my uh, book, The Strange Death of Europe, is true, Victor Orban liked very much because I said that between him and Angela Merkel, I thought that he was correct on not opening the borders unilaterally of Europe to whoever wanted to walk into Europe. And time has shown Victor Orban to have been correct, but um, it's an unpopular point. So he and I have discussed migration, uh, of course. Uh, but I, I don't apologize for meeting an elected leader. I don't think he is undermining democracy, by the way. There are criticisms that you can make of Orban, but he's been elected four times in totally fair elections. Um, and has not about So let me just clarify. That, so the reporting that, because the Prime Minister's office in Hungary, because I just Googled it just before we chatted, they, they say that in 2018, he held a Future of Europe conference, at which you attended, and Steve Bannon attended, and David Goldman attended. Each had one right? long informal discussions with the Prime Minister, the head of the... Oh, there you go. So that, so that was... A, so Steve must have spoken after me, but anyhow, he certainly met the Prime Minister after me. Right. I don't know if... Um, yeah, I, I don't Did know. Did you just happen to be in Hungary? No, I, well, I have been several times because I've been, I've been a lot of times because it was 
at that particular time, it was the absolute frontline country on the issue I was writing about, which is migration. It was the first country to put up border walls, yes, uh, which right. was invite important. But did I mean, everybody did invite after... you to the country or did you just happen to be there? No, the no I went on my own seat. I have accepted speaking invitations in Hungary, including to the Danube Institute. Um, but, but yes, and I mean, I, I find it very interesting to see and meet with politicians wherever I go. It's the same in Australia. Um, although when I last was in Australia, I was meant to be having lunch with Malcolm Turnbull. Unfortunately, I had to put him off because I had an event. And then uh, the next week, he wasn't prime minister anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you probably... And I have to say, slightly cruelly, I think I ditched him. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you may have had more in common with the uh, with the conservative flank of his party than his kind of uh, than his rather milk toast. Well, I've met I mean, I've met all of I met all you know all his as well. I, met, I had the pleasure of meeting Tony Abbott and John, uh, John Howard, mm. other 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 prime ministers of Australia. But so, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's what I do. This concern, one of the things I do. I mean, the, so the concern is we don't want to embolden, and just to part, just to okay. So, so you also mentioned that, or you don't think Orban is undermining democracy. Freedom House, you know, the think tank, yes. they've downgraded Hungary uh, to partly free. They say that there's been sustained attacks on the country's democratic institutions. Yeah, uh, they, they, the press and the judiciary. Yeah, they say the... Have, they say Orban has used all of this. Yeah. Sorry. You have to remember that all of this stuff is highly politicized. If anyone wants to look at inter interventions into the judicial process, you can look at what the socialist government of Spain has done in recent years. Nobody seems to carry out care very much about that um, because we're slightly more, and maybe for good reasons, slightly more um, tightly wired for right-wing governments that do these sorts of things than left-wing governments. Um, the main other criticism in Hungary is freedom of the press. Um, I do think that there's been infractions on freedom of the press. And people say, well, you know, for instance, that a friend of Orban's bought a newspaper and then closed it down. Uh, allegedly, uh, I haven't had a time to look into that one. But there were, there were allegations of that kind. And it's been said by people who say, well, when you say that Victor Orban has been legitimately elected prime minister, um, you've got to remember that he's got most of the press on his side. And I'm afraid, and this isn't a flippant point, but have you seen America recently? I mean, have you seen the fact that in an American election cycle, big tech silenced a paper I write for the New York Post, America's oldest newspaper, and got dozens of former intelligence, former and serving intelligence officials to pretend that the laptop of Hunter Biden was Russian disinformation. Like nothing has happened in Hungary, as far as I know in the media, as completely as corrupt as what happened before the last American election in deliberately ensuring that a story that was negative about Joe Biden did not get aired. But that sounds a it's, bit like whataboutism, Douglas. No, it's not whataboutism at all. Well, it's, it's in, in discussion in, about do, if you have free, do you have a free press or not? And the answer is it's always sketchy. Yes. It's always, it's but there's always. A there's a difference between sort of, uh, you know, mildly corrupt and confused, woke uh, social media platforms being antagonistic towards free speech versus the leader of a country shutting down no, no. media institutions and having his friends buy them up and close them because they don't like him. Um, I would say that they are all on a, on a grade scale. 
And in the case of America, in the case of the world's most important democracy, the fact that the, the papers of record like the Washington Post and the New York Times took two years to even concede that the contents of the laptop were true. And I'm, not, and I'm saying this, I'm not interested in the tittle-tattle about the laptop. I'm interested in the, in the fact that you can see overt corruption in the immediate family of the man who's now president. The, the fact that that was not deemed to be a story because old legacy media and new tech decided to snuff out the story is a scandal. It's I mean, not just it's about it. Yes, it's, no, I think, well, no. It's, it's, and, and sorry, again, and, and again, using, using intelligence officials to help do so is of an order of magnitude, I would suggest, much more serious than anything I've seen happen in any other democracy, including Hungary. I mean, I think that was a, an appalling, um, an appalling move. On, I can also understand that in the wake of 2016, with the Comey drop just before the election, publications were worried about being had by you know nefarious forces who were dropping. You know what? Bites. Any journalist in America, the New York Times or the Washington Post, could have picked up a phone to any of the people on the emails, that the email cache that was on the laptop and said, did you receive this email? Yeah. You know, and if right. they said yes, you'd have said, oh, okay, it appears that at least some of the contents of the laptop are true. It would have taken one phone call and they didn't do it. Why? Because most of the media in America in 2020 wanted to get Joe Biden into office at all costs. Yeah. They were willing to lie. They were willing to cover up. They were willing to silence a newspaper all to get their guy into office. And if you're telling me that's not a form of media corruption, we're going to disagree. No, I think that is a form of media corruption. But I mean, it's also true that the United States invaded Iraq illegally. But when whataboutists point to it, it doesn't change the, fa the fact that it sounds like they're just changing the subject. I mean, for people who don't understand the whole Hungary thing, the, I'll just elaborate on the Freedom House thing. So the Freedom House says that Orban has used his parliamentary supermajority to impose restrictions on or assert control over the opposition, the media, religious groups, academia, non-governmental organizations, the courts, asylum seekers, and the private sector. And observers also from the OECD, the, oh, sorry, from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, found that the elections in 2018 were characterized by, quote, a pervasive overlap between state and ruling party resources undermining contestants' ability to compete. Yeah, on it. this is, this is, it is such an absurd, but, no, but it is such an absurd accusation. Um, do you know that, do, do, do you know um, the, in the referendum of 2016 in the UK on Brexit, do you know which side had the government behind them? The Remain yeah. side. Every yeah. single, every single household in the UK was sent a leaflet, a document from the UK government telling them how to vote. Okay. The, the leave side didn't have that right. Only the remain side had that right. Now, is that undue influence in a referendum? Oh, you bet it is. You bet it is. That's government using government resources, which are all, after all taxpayer resources to tell the public how to vote. What's Freedom House's view on that? I don't know. So do you, uh, I'm not clear what you're saying. Are you arguing that Hungary is just as democratic as other European countries? I, I'm not. I'm saying that there, is, there are gradations on all of these things. Freedom House and other entities have had very good histories in some cases. 
Um, much of what is happening now is highly politicized to an extent which I think needs to be treated with a certain amount of skepticism. Um, as I say, I have seen some of what's happening with the press in Hungary. I've spoken to Hungarian journalists from much of the opposition media. There is a lot of opposition media in Hungary. There's no loss of it. Uh, if uh, Fidesz had total control of the country, uh, they wouldn't have lost the Budapest uh, mayoralty uh, two years ago or whatever. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's perfectly possible to make criticisms of Viktor Orban as with any other leader without falling into what I think is a pervasive thing at the moment, which is there isn't democracy in Hungary. Um, no, but one shouldn't be concerned by its trajectory. I'm just trying to... And, and should be, and should be, as I think people should be concerned with the trajectory of democracy in Spain, for instance. So is your is your suspicion that um, that Hungary currently gets the, the raw end of the deal because people Hungary don't is, like Orban? Hungary is essentially the whipping boy of Europe along with Poland. Um, Hungary and Poland are the whipping boys of Europe. They are the awkward squad in the EU. They are the ones that refused to take migrant quotas in recent years because they said this was a problem that Angela Merkel had created and they were not going to have to pay the consequences for that. And as a result, there's been a long, ongoing, very bitter dispute at the highest levels of the EU to literally punish both of those countries. Um, and I think that's I think that's unfair. I think that there are criticisms that should be made of the Hungarian government, as there can be of the. Uh, I mean, I think the treatment of the uh, um, uh, the, the university uh, um, in uh, that was in, in Budapest and has now moved to Vienna uh, uh, was very unwise, to say the least. I think the Hungarian government should have accepted the fact that even though the accreditation, the degrees uh, at the European University was not what they wanted. And they should, they, that nevertheless, accreditation or not, it was bad. It looked terrible to have the university, Central Europe, move out of the country. A big mistake. Um, I think you can do that. You can accept all of those things and say, we also need to work out how to treat countries like normal countries and not believe that there are certain countries in Western Europe that have got everything right and in Central and Eastern Europe who are sort of slow learners. And I think that is the, current you know i wrote about this a lot in the strange death of europe mm. um it's 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 one of the current feelings in the eu which i think will cause very significant pain going forward in europe um certainly you can't have this like slow learners club and um and the like the good boys and after all look at what the good boys are is the good boy in europe really germany Look, who is it that's compromised European stability in recent years? It's Germany. It's Germany being reliant on Russian gas. It's Germany. It's Germany whose last, whose last chancellor before Angela Merkel is a total traitor to Europe by going directly from the chancellery of Berlin to work for Gazprom. Okay, that's not Viktor Orban. That's not the Poles. That was the Germans. And the Eastern Europeans were warning like hell about the German um, closeness with the Kremlin. And nobody listened to them. And everyone allowed Berlin to get away with it. And in 20 years' time, when we look back at this decade and think, 
what might have gone wrong in Europe in the 2020s. I can bet you that much more important than anything to do with law and justice in Poland or Fidesz in Hungary will be the fact that all of the mainstream parties in Germany allowed Europe's most important power to be totally in bed with the Kremlin. Mm. Well, even if you just, I mean, even setting that aside, even if you just focus on immigration, the, uh, the, the insistence by Germany and other countries to, uh, to welcome in incredibly large numbers in an un uncontrolled way from the perspective of a country like Australia, which has, you know, its own problems with its immigration policy, but nonetheless has always believed, uh, ever since the end of the Second World War, that you have to have a, an extremely tight control of the border in order to win permission from the people to have very high rates of yes. immigration. And that has yes. been able to sustain very high rates of humanitarian immigration uh, by having a rigid and brutal uh, border policy. You know, it mm. looks it looks foolhardy what what Germany was up to. Absolutely, as I say, I, I wrote about that in the Strange Death of Europe. Yeah, very very critical of Angela Merkel. But just one other thing: don't forget also at the beginning of the Ukraine conflict. Uh, um, I think that by the way, Orbán's government has been far too. Um, cautious about the uh, un un unanimity on uh, sanctions, certain sanctions. They've, they've, been, they've been on board with a lot of the sanctions against Russia since the beginning of the war in Ukraine. I think they've been far too timorous on some of them. But, you know, what was the country at the beginning of the conflict that wouldn't even allow refueling of British planes taking arms to the Ukrainians in the first days of the conflict? Germany. Mm. Germany. By the way, that was an exact replay of what happened in 1973, where if you remember, the Germans and others wouldn't allow American planes to refuel to take arms to the Israelis when they were being attacked from all sides. So when, whenever we see like, countries singled out and becoming the bad guys, I do always think, you know, we've got to, to wonder the extent to which, you know, other people doing bigger bad things are getting away with stuff whilst our ire is concentrated on, say, a country of 10 million people in the centre of Europe. So just to close the loop on that country, if the UK or the US could have Orban as its leader, would that be good? <laughs> well, it doesn't work. I mean, it wouldn't work because the Central Eastern European democracies are very different. I mean, I've spent quite a lot of time. They're very different. They have, they have very different views on faith. They have very different views on... I mean, you know, remember these are countries where, I mean, Viktor Orban himself, uh, as with the leaders of Czechia and other countries, grew up under communism. Uh, they, they have a totally different view on things. They, they live in countries where fascism and then communism smashed them apart. They have different memories. They've got different sensibilities, different sensitivities. They have family policies and things that would not be permissible. Western Europe or America, um, you know, they encourage their own people to have children and get tax incentives and things that most Western countries have given up on. Uh, so, you know, it's like saying, would it be a good thing if um, Joe Biden became president or prime minister of Hungary? Would work. <laughs> That'd be, I want to see that. But I mean, well, just to, to stretch the analogy then, because uh, I think you can do better at responding to your to your critics than that. The the criticism that I hear most frequently of you is that by being as full-throated about the failings of the left as you are, uh, you embolden a kind of Western chauvinism that risks uh, an illiberal or autocratic 
nationalist um, yeah. ascendancy. It's it's a weird it's a weird critique because nobody who's read my work and I usually take for granted that my critics haven't. It's one of the things that distinguishes them. <laughs> I read their work. I read the work of I read the work of writers I disagree with. I notice that the favor is not returned. Um, uh, but yes, I mean anyone who reads my work knows that I'm not interested in that stuff at all, at all, and make pretty full throated denunciations of that when I feel it's needed. I'm not at all shy in making criticisms of the right. I'm perfectly willing to make myself unpopular on the right by saying things and writing things that do so. I can think of plenty of pieces I've written in the last year alone, which do that. At the beginning of the Russia conflict, I wrote a piece in the spectator about where the, where part of the American right had gone badly wrong on the, on the Ukraine and Russia. Um, I, I thought it was a very important thing to happen immediately after the January the 6th, uh, um, disaster in Washington, uh, Jordan Peterson and I agreed with each other that since we were both regarded as being to some extent, you know, figures on the right who people listened to, we should get together and do a multi-hour discussion for as wide an audience as possible and hand it out for free about where the right was going wrong. So, um, whenever people say something along the lines of, you know, oh, I don't know, you don't pay enough attention to that. I think, well, you know, they just don't pay enough attention to my actual work. Mm. And, uh, sure. I spend, I spend a lot of, I spend more time focusing on the things that I think are problems right now than on things that could be a problem down the road. If the things I'm talking about aren't addressed. But I mean, you can only see round so many corners and it's not given to us to see round more than one, basically. So, I mean, I think they, they also have a, you know, my, my most recent podcast, I may not be the most recent by the time people hear this, but, but the episode with Anna Marie Cox is interesting because she's a political reporter who's become very woke and she treats the where's she based in the states um she's a she, she, she for? founded wonket back in the day i don't know if you remember that it was a kind of um it was a very femme girl sort of hunter s thompsony bad kid on the block uh um political blog and then she was the sounds chief, like hell <laughs> then she was then she was the chief political correspondent for mtv news and she had a column okay. in the new york times magazine and She's since turned her back on it completely. But what was interesting in my argument with her was where I was taking a more Douglas Murrayan position and she was taking a conventionally woke position was she sees the right as being as sort of coming from nowhere and coming out of nothing. There's almost a sort of deus ex machina thing of like, we, we can be as left wing as we want to and we have to allied the failings of our side for fear of giving sucker or fuel to mm, yes that's right. always the <laughs> but my point was sort of i mean they're responding to something like this is an interplay in which two snakes are, are hissing at each other and to only look at the venom on one side seems seems foolish to me so i mean i suppose the Yes, I mean, I needn't belabor the point. I think you get it, but I suppose the concern of people who worry that we're focusing too much on um, on the failings of the left 
is that we're being a bit too noisy about it and we live in a real world where the crimes of January 6th were created by a real man who may yet again win power, who seems to have a disregard for the norms of small-d democracy, um, and that that's the real threat that we need to be focusing on. But I sort of flip-flop back and forth between how much time do you spend focusing on that versus how much time do you spend getting your own house in order, your own house meaning, Mm. in my case, the smaller liberal left, uh, so so that the, the... the, so that Tucker Carlson can't become president because I don't think he'd be a good one. Well, let me just, first of all, uh, t- uh, tidy up your metaphor slightly. Um, Please. It's not two snakes hissing at each other. It's fellow citizens hissing at each other. And this is very, very important. Because at some level, particularly in America, but this is a case in all our democracies, America is about as divided as you can be without having a civil war these days. Mm. That's not, thank God, the case in Australia or Britain. Um, we have our own problems, but it's not as bad as it is in America. Um, and in America, what there are many things that are being lost or have been lost for some years. And one of them is the ability to talk to each other instead of about each other. Mm. and everybody in America has become expert in talking about the other side. They've become very bad at talking with them or to them, trying to understand them. In fact, when I was last in Australia, uh, I did a tour with Con- Professor Cornell West, of, uh, then of Harvard, um, mm. and I moderated five si- the Melbourne one, didn't we? Yeah, ex- exactly. Mm. And you'll remember that Cornell and I had set out to do that, tour in order to try to show that two people who had very different political conclusions could talk to each other mm. and could discuss things. And I thought, I, mean, I, I don't know if you agree the evening that we were together for that. Um, I, I thought it did a lot of good. Yeah, that was great. Uh, you know, because I think some people turned up hoping it was going to be a boxing match, but Cornell West and I both feel there's enough boxing. How about sitting down and talking? and working out where we can find agreement and much more. That's gone wrong in America because essentially people of the left believe that if you give the right a moment, they're going to be fascist. And the right believe if you give the left a moment, they're going to be communist. Mm. And it's extremely hard to find any common ground in the situation where you believe your opponent is primed to do the worst thing they could do in your eyes. Yeah. And, and so like you can't give an inch and it is, as you say, hissing, but come back to the point, it's hissing by your fellow citizens. And that fact, that simple fact that in a democracy, you have to find a way to live together is something which I think is being lost in America. And as a result is having a very demoralizing effect across the rest of the West. Are you an optimist or a pessimist, Douglas? Does the citizen win or the snake? Well, I, I'm neither by nature. I don't think anyone is either by nature. We, we're optimistic or pessimistic depending on the hour of the day, what we've seen that day. Well, I mean, are you bullish or bearish about the, the experiment of Western civilization at this point? I go up and down on it. Um, Long term, I'm, I, I, I'm positive. 
I think we're about, we are going through and about to go through more of a very, uh, difficult turn in which, as I say, towards the end of the book, a coalition of people of, of all backgrounds, races, sexes, sexual orientations, and much more who believe in a idea of pluralism based in the societies that we've inherited are going to have to argue like hell against people from all sides who have their own reasons for wanting to tear that down. Now it is totally true that there are people on the right who want to tear that down. There are figures on the American right, some of whom will not mean anything to your listeners but who have an ugly sway on the American right in terms of ideas, who believe that effectively the democratic process has shown itself to be lacking in America. Uh, these people pose a significant problem and a challenge, and uh, as do the people on the left who would make us all reduce ourselves to our chromosomes and more importantly to our skin pigmentation. These people also present a very, very serious challenge. The people who want, as I say, uh, revenge, not justice. Um, people of, of um, a bewildering array of backgrounds and ideas, if we are able to coalesce, um, we'll be able to see these people off from all sides. And I give uh, examples, actually, at the end of the war in the West, of the type of specifically black American thinkers of today who I think are leading the way in ensuring that this is going to end well. Mm. If their voices are heard more and not the demagogues, um, I think that I'm very positive. These are good foundations we're standing on, arguably the best. Um, so as I say, in the long term, I'm positive. I just think that the, the immediate future is going to be filled with turmoil, not least because, as you well know, the whole nature in which we communicate is undergoing a, a revolution that makes Gutenberg look uh, like a walk in the park. Mm. No, we, 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 nobody knew when the printing press first came about what it was going to lead to in terms of conflict. Uh, we have no idea still what the technological revolution, social media revolution is going to, is doing to us and our, our brains. But I believe that if there are enough people of sense who I hope follow what I always say is my minimalist, my absolute minimalist request for people in this era, which is first and foremost, don't go mad. <laughs> and... <laughs> I think there are enough people, uh, but it's, it's going to be uphill work for a while, but in the end, uh, don't bet against the West. Mm. On that uplifting piece of advice, don't go mad. Uh, I will, uh, I will, I will leave this for our regular subscribers. Will you stay for, uh, for, um, for sure. eight questions because, uh, our subscribers get a bonus, uh, a bonus segment where I ask you. A few very left field uh, first eight questions, like what your parents taught you the most about life and what your pleasure, first, yeah. your first book and so on is. So if you're not a subscriber to the show, thank you for listening. If you are a subscriber, stay with us for first date questions. Um, what's the first book you read that really stuck with you, Douglas? Um, probably The Lord of the Flies. I read it too young. 
and uh, my older brother had read it and I got hold of it and I read it and I was stunned, absolutely stunned. Terrified? Uh, oh, almost certainly. Mm. Uh, I just, you know, the injustice of a, of a book not ending as you thought they ending, they needed to end because you just hadn't read adult books. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was, was Where's the prince on a horse who comes to rescue them? Exactly, exactly. A very good thing to happen, though. I mean, and, and that that's always um, the thrill of that has never left me in a way. And the horror of it, of course, I have a subgenre in my head of books like that that are so disturbing they stay with you and you, I slightly wish you hadn't read them. Mm. But yes, that was probably the first uh, grown-up book I read, which, which, you know, hit me between the eyes and mm. made me want to know a lot more. Who, um, who taught you the most about life apart from your parents? Living or dead? Either. I mean, it's, it's hard because in a way you learn most from, from people you've never met, you know. I learned an enormous amount from books. Um, uh, I think T.S. Eliot probably had the most impact. In the four quartets probably had more impact than anything mm. else. Mm. Um, and, um, and then of, of people apart from family I've known, uh, as usual, as with all of us, a few remarkable teachers, um, who, uh, took an interest in encouraging me, uh, when I was a, um, uh, 15 year old or so already wanting to write my first book and having people who said, you know, this is how you should do it and you should definitely do that and you should look at this and that rather than don't you think it's a bit early, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that matters a lot. I mean, mm. um, encouragement at the beginning is probably for, for people in any walk of life, the thing that matters most. Have you been on any good road trips? I feel like my whole life is a road trip. <laughs> I'm constantly moving. Um, I've never, I've never deliberately, um, driven from one place to another or traveled from one place to another simply to do the journey. Um, mm -hmm. because I travel, I mean, I used to, before I was in America, I used to be in a different country every week and, um, why so, so much? Is that speaking to us? Was partly that, partly always trying to find out what was going on in certain places and reporting from them and much more. Um, there are uh, several journeys I would love to make road trips as it were, that they're actually sea trips. I'd love to set out for Ithaca at some point. Mm. Um, uh, and, uh, have the Cavafy poem by hand. You're such a romantic. Um, what's the worst movie you've seen? Oh my God. That's so hard. There's almost all. <laughs> um, there's so many. Well, do you have a favorite and then we can get to a worst? I think one of my favorite, I have a lot of favorite movies. There's, there's one I've become very fond of in recent years by, um, uh, Italian director, Paolo Sorrentino mm. called the great beauty. Yes. Which is a wonderful movie. And one of the very few movies I've seen several times because it's, it repays rewatching. I don't think many movies do. Oh, we could argue about that film for forever. I absolutely loved the first three quarters of it and then worried that it became what it was critiquing a little bit 
self-indulgent and bloated and self-regarding yeah. and uh and sure. slow. but maybe i'm just not sophisticated uh, enough to and i suppose the, the greatest the, then the greatest film is probably the film of a book that i'm also very dedicated to which is the leopard uh yes. as for bad films i mean almost everything i look at on uh the planes uh, uh is terrible i just watched this film the, the lost jungle or something <laughs> I Daniel saw that with San, Sandra Bullock and Chet. Sandra Bullock. Oh my God, it was so bad. And Daniel Radcliffe was so appalling. Mm. Oh, um, 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 a lot of, uh, I mean, a lot of movies are just so banal today. Uh, but then you sometimes find a good one and it makes it all worth it. So, you know. All right. That, yes. That that's, we don't need to go over the litany of terrible, of terrible movies. Did you watch TV as a kid? What did you like to watch? I did. Um, Funny enough, I used to watch Neighbours uh, most days. Um, I That's the Australian soap, not your neighbours yeah. across, uh, across the way. <laughs> Who used right. to buy them with a small pair of binoculars? Very. Well, no, actually, it was that. Oh, you got it wrong. <laughs> no, the, you're right, the Australian soap. Um, uh, I was lucky also in, the, in that, um, without sounding too serious about things, I suppose I watched a certain amount of television. We're never allowed to watch too much. It's a good thing. Um, uh, and of course though, those days, I mean, I'm now 42, but in those days, television was an event in a way, which it isn't now, hmm. um, in that, you know, when a particular thing happened in a soap or a particular film or something, you know, it was the talk of everything for days afterwards. Um, and, uh, I think the things that looking back that made the most impression on me in television actually were. Um, BBC and other channels doing serious arts programming of a kind that they don't do anymore. Mm. Um, there was a program called the South Bank Show when I was growing up, usually presented by Melvin Bragg, and it would present a serious hour or two of television about a particular artist, um, a painter, a composer, a, um, a, you know. But um, it it was one of the things that told me these are things you should um, head towards. You should know about these people. Mm. These are the people who, are, who who clearly are doing things that matter. Um, and most of them were alive, I think. I mean, like Francis Bacon, there was a famous South Bank show interview with him. And um, uh, so I, the shows like that, which took culture seriously and which now, I mean, you just don't get anywhere. Mm. Um, those made a huge impression and they, they pretty much helped form my taste in the arts, uh, 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 and tastes I still have. How wonderful. It would be regarded as too prescriptive these days, wouldn't it? You, you have to sort of reflect would. what people are actually into rather than what they should be aspiring to be. Into. Mm. Um, what's the worst household chore? I've tried to arrange my life so I don't have it. <laughs> <laughs> he says from a place of place dripping with privilege. Exactly. Uh, no, I am. Uh, I don't know. Probably making my first coffee in the morning. Um, the uh, best ice cream flavor uh, when you're wandering around the streets of. I, I don't. Uh, I don't have a. I don't have a sweet tooth. If I had to give it, probably pistachio. Wow. Do you have a savory tooth? Yes, I do. What's your favorite thing to eat? Well, I mean, the cherry at the bottom of a Manhattan. <laughs> yes. 
Yes, I had a fair few of those in my time in New York. Or an olive at the, the bottom olive. of them. Like, the the yes, exactly. The <laughs> olive at the bottom of a, a, a very dry martini or slightly. That's exactly. Yes. Um, if you lived, if you could live to a hundred and you could either keep your, the, the body you had when you were 30 or the mind that you had when you were 30, and you didn't know how things were going to pan out, but you had to opt for one or the other, which would you take? The mind, the mind every time. Mm. It's the thing that is worst when you see people lose. Yeah. Uh, and the truth is, as long as you have your mind, you can still roam anywhere. Uh, it's it's a true. rather wonderful thing that you can, you can revisit places. You can't go to any, think on them again. Do you worry about death? Uh, no, I worry about not using my time, mm. which is a slightly different thing. Yes. Have you read Oliver Berkman's book? No. Do you know it? Oliver? No. Oliver's another Brit who was living in Brooklyn until recently when he moved back to the UK. I think his wife was doing, um, got a, a job at a university there. And he, he had a column in The Guardian for a long time about sort of personal life management and like pop psychology. Brilliant, brilliant guy. Uh, and his latest book is, I think, called 4,000 Weeks. It's basically, it's, it's, oh, yeah, I heard about management that. for mortals. Um, mm. he has a couple of great episodes of this podcast, should you choose to delve back through the Uncomfortable Conversations mm. archive. Uh, but his, his book is well worth a read or the audio book worth a listen because it's all about how to use, about mm. time management, not from a perspective of how to manage your time, but how to manage your life. The fact that you have a finite amount of weeks and what are you really going to do with them? Yeah. Wise. Yes. And the, ne the necessity of, of not allowing them to direct you or you just being directed by time. Yeah. Actually arranging it. Yeah. It. Uh, all right. Last first date question. Uh, the, uh, the old time machine question. You can go wherever you want to in the past or the future and you can come back and, you know, you can have vaccinations and whatever. Where do you go? Um, gosh, uh, it's so difficult because the different bits of my interests kick in. Obviously I'd like to be in Elizabeth, Elizabethan England at a theater on the South bank of the Thames, uh, with penicillin in my, yeah. um, and, uh, see what Shakespeare was like in person. Um, I'd have loved to have known if the stuff just spilt out of him as I think it did. Um, otherwise, uh, oh, so many things, um, I'd have loved to have seen pre first world war Vienna. Uh, I'd have loved to have seen what Stefan Zweig describes in the, in the world of yesterday, the, the time, what's the phrase he uses, the time without speed, um, but everything happened at a different pace. Uh, and you know, there are just various people I would have loved to have met, um, and seen at work, uh, picked the brains off and, and some, I only just missed. I have some friends in their nineties who knew some of the people I really admire. And, uh, mm. uh, uh, I'd have liked to have gone back. Actually, maybe I, maybe I would have liked to have gone back in time. I would like to have met Robert Schumann and had some mm. mental health advice to give him and maybe some uh, medicine as well <laughs> and 
kept him going much longer than sadly he was able to. Yeah. That would be a very worthwhile trip. Yes. Yeah. Take antidepressants back to the people who. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Just a pack uh, of Prozac. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Douglas, it's uh, it's lovely to speak with you. I'm so glad we could catch up uh, a- again. Oh, likewise. I hope you can make it to our sunny shores or that uh, that I can buy you a pint when, want to. when I'm next in uh, in New York. Uh, we shall look forward to raising a very dry mud. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, thanks, Douglas. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.